for this afternoon is the exact same as the scripture reading, Hebrews 8, and so we're not going to read it again, um, but it's highly recommended to have that passage open on your lap or nearby as we work our way through the text. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, well, I'm sure that many of the school-aged children here might not have English class at the top of their mind. I wonder how many children here can tell us what an adjective is. Maybe I'm wrong, but by the time most school-aged children reach the midpoint of elementary school, they should be able to tell us that an adjective is. It's a word usually placed before a noun that's used to describe an attribute or to modify that noun. So, for example, if we had the noun car, we could modify that noun with the word fast, the fast car. That's about as basic as you can get with English grammar. And maybe a small step beyond that is to use adjectives to compare objects or to compare nouns. In that kind of scenario, there are two different types of adjectives you can choose from. The first category is called comparative adjectives. And the second category are the superlative adjectives. Now, comparative adjectives, they're pretty easy to spot and use in a sentence. Usually, they end with the letters ER. So if we're talking about two cars and we want to compare the two cars, we have a fast car and a faster car. You compare the two and one is quicker. Now, in the context of the book of Hebrews, we find a repeated comparative adjective. I wonder if you noticed it. It showed up in the scripture passage as well today. It's the word better. I'm not sure how familiar all of you are with the book of Hebrews, but the author has been arguing throughout the book that Jesus is better. Jesus is a better prophet. Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better king. Jesus is a better mediator. He's better than Moses. That's Hebrews 3. He's a better hope. He's a better anchor for our souls. He's the fulfillment of a better promise. The adjectives, they pile up. It's the same one. Better, better, better. And when we come to Hebrews 8, we have a moment to survey the pile, this mountain of betters. And in the final analysis, at this point in chapter 8, we weigh the evidence and the Holy Spirit leads us to another theological conclusion. Jesus isn't just better. No, a superlative adjective is in theological order. Now, a superlative adjective, it doesn't merely compare two objects. It goes further than that. A superlative expresses the highest quality or degree possible. Back to the car. So, I could have a fast car, I could have a faster car, but then there's the fastest car. That's a superlative. And superlatives, they matter to us. Some of you are into sports. People that like sports, they're arguing all the time, who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time? If we're talking basketball, the debate is LeBron or Michael Jordan. In hockey, it's Gretzky or McDavid. Who's the GOAT? In the context of Hebrews, all the comparative adjectives so far, all the betters of Hebrews points to a glorious gospel truth. Jesus isn't just better 
as wonderful as that truth is, no, Jesus is actually the best. That's the message of Hebrews. He's the greatest of all time. He is the strongest. He is the kindest. He is the most sympathetic and empathetic. He's the most gracious. He alone is the Savior who saves sinners like us to the uttermost and forever. Those are all superlatives. This is why, for instance, when we turn to other books in the Bible, we see the authors using superlative tones to describe who the person of Jesus really is. The Apostle Paul. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. In Philippians 2, he reflects on who Jesus is. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name Jesus is a superlatively great name, the most exalted. And so Jesus isn't just a better Savior. No, Jesus is a superlative Savior. He's the best. And actually, he's the only one. And so now as we turn our attention specifically to Hebrews 8, the author adds two more betters to the growing case for our superlative Savior. The first better is that Jesus ministers in a better tabernacle, and the second better is that he mediates a better covenant. If you take a look at Hebrews 8 verse 1, you'll find that the author appears to conclude the previous section of this book with what looks like a pretty significant summarizing sentence. He writes, Now the point in what we are saying is this. The NIV, it puts it a little bit stronger. It says, The main point of what we are saying. So if we have to pay attention, if you've read the book of Hebrews and you haven't paid attention for seven chapters, here's the point. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. That's the point of Hebrews 1-7. to We have such a high priest. And so it's obvious that we're looking at a consequential sentence. The previous seven chapters have seen the author weave the Old Testament story about Moses and the wilderness and Abraham and Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood into this stunning tapestry that points to Jesus. And now it's clear that the author doesn't want his original audience and he doesn't want you and me to leave only having our heads scratched or our theological curiosities satisfied. It's actually important to pause on that note and notice something about the way that we tend to be. Too often, for example, we're prone to gauge the quality of a sermon with whether or not we learn something new. Oh, that was a good sermon, Pastor Tim. I didn't know that before I came in. Well, that's not a bad thing if you learn something in church, but you shouldn't come to church necessarily to learn something new. Sermons, they contain information, but they aren't about information. This isn't a university lecture hall. This isn't a classroom. More than anything, God uses the preaching of the word for spiritual transformation. And so we shouldn't be leaving worship services the same way we entered. Is there maturity of faith? Is there progressive transformation? Is there sanctification? Is there Christ-likeness forming in your life? And so the author of Hebrews in verse 1, it makes it clear 
that he isn't primarily interested in a theological lecture on the intricacies of the Old Testament. If he was, the book of Hebrews could be this thick and he'd only be hitting the tip of the iceberg. His spirit-inspired intentions are infinitely grander than that. Everything he has said about Jesus and his connection to the Old Testament so far has real relevance, application, and implication for our lives as believers. In fact, if we miss this point, then the entire foundation of our Christian walk, our ethics, our morality, all of it will be built on shifting sand. Look at verse 1 again. This is the main point in everything he's been saying. This is Christianity 101. We have such a high priest. Okay, but what does that mean? What's he saying? Well, if you have your Bibles with you, just turn for a few moments back to Hebrews 7 because the immediate context, the closest reference to that phrase, such a high priest, that's found in Hebrews 7 verse 26. And right there we read, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. It was fitting, or we could say appropriate. It was suitable. It was proper. Here's the main point the author is making. Only Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God in the flesh, perfectly fits the qualifications for the high priest that we need, for the Savior that we require to deliver us from the wrath of God. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is holy. Only Jesus is innocent. Only Jesus is unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Only Jesus. No one else fits the bill. No one else comes even close. And now if we zoom out from Hebrews 7.26 and broaden our focus, we discover that such a high priest, it's the merging together of two major themes that the author has been discussing in the first seven chapters. The author has been holding two, two ideas, two themes in his hands. The first major theme that shows up in the opening verses is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh. And the second theme is that Jesus, the Son of God who took on flesh, has become our great and eternal human high priest. By grace, by faith, we have such a high priest. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the only person who can save us from sins forever. Not just today, but forever. We don't need to look anywhere else. Jesus is sufficient. He is our superlative high priest. And so building on this reality, the author draws our attention more explicitly and concretely to another theme that he has threaded through the previous chapters. He has argued that Jesus presently sits, lives, and ministers at the right hand of the majesty on high, at the throne of grace. He has passed, that is, he's ascended, and this is the language of transcendence, through the heavens and has entered into the inner place. Hebrews 6 says that Jesus has entered behind the curtain. He has entered there as a forerunner on our behalf. He is preparing the way for us to follow him. And so notice what he writes in verse 2. Jesus 
is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. There's an interesting word choice in verse 2 when he says that Jesus is a minister. In the original Greek, the word used there is kind of similar to our English word liturgy. When we speak about liturgy, we often think about our worship services or the order of our worship. But liturgy is the public worship service. Liturgy is the public ministry of the word. It's the sacraments and prayer and songs and offerings. So we could say that Jesus, our high priest, performs liturgy in the high places in heaven. Like a minister or a worship leader, Jesus functions and serves in a liturgical capacity. In fact, from heaven, right now, he leads our worship here on earth. Jesus is our worship leader. In other words, the religious or the priestly ministry of Jesus, it's not done in secret. It's done in public. It's done before the throne of God above. This is the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus, our eternal high priest, lives and ministers on our behalf around the clock in our time of need. What a gospel. What a priest. Now notice the place where Jesus ministers is the true sanctuary. When you think about the word sanctuary in the context of the Bible, you think of the tabernacle and the temple, and specifically the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the scriptures speak about God having this as his footstool on earth. The sanctuary is where God's presence dwells. So if that's true then Jesus ministers in the real sanctuary. It's not just a footstool on earth. It's the throne room of heaven where God reigns in all splendor and glory. Jesus doesn't minister at the footstool. He ministers in the very presence of his Father. So the place where Jesus ministers is the true holy of holies. The place where Jesus ministers and offers his priestly liturgy, it's not imaginative. It's not make-believe, it's not false, but it's real, it's genuine, it's true, it's the original tent, it's the original tabernacle. We're familiar with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that would include, in the beginning, God pitched a tent. God set up the true holy place. At this very moment, Sunday afternoon, our ascended high priest, Jesus is leading our worship in a better tabernacle before his Father. And so the logic here is stunning. Have a look at verses 3 through 5. It says there, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, this priest is Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The author is reminding his readers, he's reminding us, that we should not look for salvation in the things on earth. Even in the Old Testament, 
And especially in the first century, when the author of Hebrews is writing this, he is saying, don't look to the temple for salvation. You should not be looking to the priestly service for salvation. Even the priests are sinful. If you read Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16, it speaks about the Day of Atonement that's fulfilled on Good Friday. It gives this long prescription of what was supposed to happen on the Day of Atonement. And most of that is written and directed at the high priest. The high priest, before he goes into the Holy of Holies, he's got to sacrifice a bull for his sins and the sins of his household. He has to purify himself. He's supposed to burn incense when he enters the Holy of Holies so that he can't clearly see the mercy seat. Then he's supposed to sprinkle blood on it for his sins and for the sins of his people. All of this, everything screamed that this man is a sinner. And then only temporarily, one day of the year, for just a few moments, he would enter into the presence of the holy God and that at his footstool. But Jesus offers something. He offers himself. That's the gift Jesus brings into the presence of God. He offers himself. Hebrews 7 says, once for all, one time, it is finished. And he enters behind the curtain forever, the real curtain. The Gospels tell us that the fake curtain was split into two. And so the author of Hebrews, he goes a step further. He calls the entire Levitical system the entire design of the tabernacle. Think of Solomon's glorious temple. He calls them all a copy, a shadow, a model, a pattern of the true tent in heaven. Perhaps some parents have experienced taking their children to the zoo. Woodland Zoo in Seattle, maybe Greater Vancouver Zoo. Now toddlers, on the best of days, they can be strong-willed. But when it's hot and they're tired of walking, their obstinacy is soon amplified exponentially. But maybe you've had it where one of your kids, a toddler at the time, they can become obsessed with that detailed map of the zoo that you get when you pay for your admission. In fact, a child can become so obsessed with that map that they completely lose interest in looking at the actual animals in the exhibits. They're so focused on that scale model of the zoo with the animated pictures and creatures rather than staring at a real lion or a real bear. They can prefer the copy, the shadow, the model, the pattern to the real thing. And as a parent, you would be left wondering, why did I spend all this time and all this money going to a zoo to have my child prefer to look at a map? Now, toddlers, they can be excused for their myopic view of the world. They don't usually know any better. But the author of Hebrews is telling us that there is far more at stake when it comes to which tent, which high priestly service we look to for salvation. The copy, the shadow, and pattern, and the temple in Jerusalem, and the Levitical priesthood, they were only good and helpful insofar as they pointed to an infinitely more beautiful reality, a superlative Savior named Jesus, who forever cleanses us from our sins. And this is why in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so we have to ask, where are you looking? Are you looking to the model? Are you looking to things on this earth? Or are you looking to Jesus? Well, in verse 6, the author's focus begins to shift. Let's have a look at verse 6 and 7. As we read it, notice the comparative adjectives. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent, comparative, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. At face value, this assertion is is fairly easy to grasp. The author is saying that the Levitical priests operated under the Mosaic covenant in the arrangement was found to be lacking. Something was missing. In the previous chapter, Hebrews 7, the author uses really stark language. He calls it weak and useless because perfection was not attainable through it. But Jesus, we just read, ministers and mediates a new covenant that is more excellent because it's founded on better promises. What are those promises? It's the promise of salvation, of forgiveness through Christ's death and resurrection, through his broken body and outpoured blood on the cross. That's the better promises of the new covenant that Jesus mediates. Think now of what Paul writes when he's speaking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. We hear these words every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul is looking back to Matthew 26 when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper. We'll hear these words next week as I think we celebrate the Lord's Supper then. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you hear that language of a new covenant? In Hebrews 8, 1 Corinthians 11, Matthew 26, we have to ask the question, what biblical warrant is there for the author of Hebrews, Paul, and even Jesus to talk like this? Can they validate these remarks? You can't just pull new covenants out of the air. What are they saying this for? Where is this coming from? And how is this better than the Mosaic covenant? And here in our passage, This is where the author brings in this quotation from Jeremiah 31. You can see the citation in Hebrews 8. It's where it's indented on the pages. Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. So in the context of this prophecy, the prophet Jeremiah stood and wept over the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem. And as he sees men, women, and children the covenant people of God in chains being led away into exile, 
Jeremiah and the people had to have asked the question, what happened? What went wrong? God, I thought you would be faithful. And in that moment, God came to Jeremiah with an unbelievably wonderful promise, the promise of a new covenant, a better covenant, the promise of a covenant that would right the wrongs and perfect the inadequacies of the previous covenant. It's worth noting in Hebrews 8 where the exact quotation begins. Look at verse 8, the first sentence. It doesn't actually belong to the prophecy of Jeremiah. We read, For he, that's God, finds fault with them when he says. That's noteworthy. It wasn't so much that God found fault in the terms of the Old Covenant. The fault was with the people. He finds fault with them. God, he had promised to be their God. He had promised that they would be his people, but they were uncertain. They were unfaithful. The fault was also with the Levitical priests. They were weak and useless and were sinful human beings that could not save others. Sin was the weakness of the old covenant. It could not be dealt with definitively. And so he finds fault. And so as the exiles are carried off, God promises a new era. He looks back to Israel's history and unfaithfulness in the wilderness. It's cited here, when I led you by the hand. He looks beyond the 70 years of exile. He looks all the way to the coming of Christ. He looks all the way to the upper room and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then we read this prophecy from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. That's a new kind of relationship with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Do you see that? These nations, they've been ripped apart and they're going to be reunified. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. It's not God's fault. It's not the covenant's fault. It's sin. On the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he instituted the new and better covenant. His once-for-all sacrifice and outpoured blood would put an end to the Levitical system, to the shedding of blood, to the old covenant. Through Christ, our sin could be definitively, once-for-all, to the uttermost, dealt with. Micah 7 says, God has hurled them into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103 says, He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. Through Jesus, God's promise would come to fulfillment. Look at verse 10 and 11 now as part of that prophecy. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What we see in the words of Jeremiah is that what God wants from you is you. He wants you He wants your heart. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have a relationship with his people. And what God is going to give you 
is himself. He gives you Jesus, our superlative Savior. All of this is made possible in Jesus. Jesus is the new Israel. He is the one who keeps the law perfectly. He fulfills the covenant demands. He is the one who loves the Lord our God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loves his neighbor as himself. He does this perfectly. He fulfills the requirements of the law and he does this for you and for me. We are lawbreakers. We could never do this. The people of Israel could never do this. But Christ does it on our behalf. And his righteousness, his faithfulness, his obedience, by grace, by faith, it's credited to you. And your sin is placed on his shoulders at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, it reminds us, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus, God the Father looks at you and me and says, you've done it. Sin has been crucified and paid for. I will be their God and you will be my people. Jesus is the key to understanding that prophecy. Through his atoning work as the priest, mediator, superlative savior of this new covenant, Jesus provides definitive cleansing from the guilt of sin. And he frees us from our weakness and our inability to keep the law. All of this is covered in Jesus. Only Jesus. Only in Jesus can God truly say to you and me this afternoon with full confidence, I will remember their iniquities. I, sorry, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. As long as Jesus intercedes for us, which according to Hebrews is forever, to the uttermost, as long as Jesus ministers and mediates, then God will not remember our sins. Or more accurately, he sees them and he remembers them by showing mercy in Jesus Christ. That's a way better covenant, isn't it? But there's more in this prophecy. If remembering our sins no more in Jesus amounts to the theological category of justification, God declares us righteous, then when God writes his law on our hearts and minds, that amounts to the theological category of sanctification. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, God gives us faith to believe and trust in Jesus. And he also begins to transform and change us from the inside out. We are new creations. And so obedience isn't merely external. It arises from a regenerated heart. And so because God is, at, God is the one at work in us, then we can have total confidence that this new covenant will never fail. In Jesus, we can all know the Lord directly and deeply and intimately. There is no longer a need for the mediation of priests to teach us or to gain access to God on our behalf. In Jesus, we have direct access into the throne room of heaven, into the throne of grace. And so the author concludes this chapter and we conclude by saying, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. You see, it's a comparative thing. When we compare anything to Jesus, 
It's garbage. It's junk. It's weak. It's useless. It's imperfect. Because Jesus is the best. Jesus is our superlative Savior. And and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Amen.